Awakened by an atomic blast, a terrible aquatic lizard with reticulated dorsal spines emerges to wreck an unsuspecting metropolis. The scientists and the military band together to try and stop its destructive warpath. No, this isn't Godzilla we're talking about. It's the beast from 20,000 fathoms. Welcome, everybody, back to Kaiju versus History, a podcast where we're going to be watching, categorizing, and rating all the contributions to Kaiju cinema throughout time. My name is Patrick, and you've just listened to my co-host, Miles, introduce this week's film. Hello, everybody. The best. This, this, this was an interesting one to go through. Talk about a handful of a title. The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 a film that I've actually always kind of combined with other movies that don't necessarily have a lot to do with each other. Mm-hmm. I always would mix as a child this Twenty Thousand Leagues on the Sea, oh, which for obvious reasons, yeah, and and oddly enough, the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> and I think it was only because, like, for some reason, I thought the Poseidon Adventure might have had a monster in it because I mean. Obviously, I no longer believe that. I've seen that movie since then. <laughs> but it was it was as a kid when I would go through the aisles of a blockbuster, I would always mix those three up all the time. <laughs> I, I can see twenty thousand leagues. Yeah, um, a league very different from a fathom. Before we get into it, a fathom is like it's a number feet, of right, yeah, like a meter or something and like a couple meters <laughs> and the deepest the ocean goes is like 1.2 miles deep and i think 20,000 fathoms is like 20 miles or something along those lines um doesn't I make think a ton the of Mariana's sense. trench might go down to 30 30 miles no 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 <laughs> uh 30,000 fathoms. Oh, (laughs) I don't know if that is true, but uh, what I do know is true is, yeah, this this movie came out June 13th, 1953. It premiered in both New York and Los Angeles, and then they accelerated its release to open up within its first two months in the most theaters that have ever been achieved before in that short amount of time. This is when we really get to see blockbusters happening because everyone's talking about this movie no matter where you go in the country uh, well, yeah opened, because you oh sorry i was gonna say it opened up in over 1400 theaters nationwide after june 13th which is huge this is yeah this is after the big movie boom so you mm-hmm. you no longer have movies as a traveling show you have yeah. now you might have some territories that a movie might open up in first as a test market sometimes that still happened Mm-hmm. But more and more often, you are getting these concurrent releases where you have an opening weekend and and people are starting to look now at the weekend returns of the box office. And it's a little less uh, vaudeville, a little less sideshow, a, a little more. This, this is how things are now. <laughs> um, but before we start talking about, you know, a little bit behind the scenes on this film, Patrick, I want you to tell me uh, what's in a title. <laughs> what is in this title a whole lot because this 
started as a film project proposed by Ray Harryhausen, who we talked a lot about last week with, with Mighty Joe Young, who began making the effects and showing them off to the studio, I think, in 1952 or maybe as early as 1951. And the movie was working title The Monster from Beneath the Sea, which it is. It is a monster from beneath the ocean. It's an aquatic lizard. Yep. Um, w- there's so many different stories. I couldn't nail down exact truth about how it became 20,000 fathoms, but that was a story written by Ray Bradbury, right? Yes. Uh, um, I believe in future versions, it had a different title. I think it was just a short story he did for the Saturday evening post at first. Yeah, but it was called the beast from 20,000 fathoms. Uh, later, it would be renamed the Foghorn, I believe, because it's <laughs> yes. about a giant, basically a giant like brontosaurus. Uh, I think is how it's described in the story. Um, thinking that a lighthouse uh, foghorn is like the return call of its mate. So it destroys the lighthouse and trying to like get closer to the, the light on top, which is a scene that they had already planned out for um, this film. And either Ray Bradbury got wind of it and think uh, and thought that they had stolen from his story or they realized the similarities and decided that was a better title. Either way, they paid Ray Bradbury twenty or no two thousand dollars and gave him a story inspired by credit that you'll see in the the um, the credits of this so film. And I they changed the title. I do have a little bit of a background on that because apparently Bradbury and uh, Harryhausen were very good friends, and yeah. he asked Bradbury to visit him on the set while it was still Monster from the Sea, um, mm-hmm. and asked asking basically if he could possibly do some rewriting on the script. But after reading the script, he remarked about that very same lighthouse scene seemed really, really similar to a short story he had published in the Saturday Evening Post. Yeah, in 1951. So it's not like a huge amount of time has passed between them. Well, um, what is what is what happened was the next day, Bradbury received a telegram offering to buy the film rights to the story for two thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. after the, the film's title, after the sale, the film's title was changed to The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And, and that's kind of how Bradbury got involved with this film is mostly he came to visit his buddy and yeah. noticed, well, y'all are making a monster movie, but this is very similar to something I wrote. It is. And it, it I mean, it's, just, it's really just that one scene, though, yeah. but it is about a prehistoric lizard emerging from the sea, you know. And, and we can I, have it. I think it was enough that the studio did not want to have any problems. So you may as well have a name like Bradbury on board. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a ton of other names, of course, across the, the world in, in West Germany, this is called panic in New York <laughs> in Japan. There was I, actually, I've gotten re- reports that they had a couple of different titles, uh, but Jinsi Kaiju Arawaru, uh, Kaiju is in the title of this movie <laughs> in Japan. Uh, it translates as the atomic monster appears. Um, that that phrase, uh, especially appears, um, happens a lot in in Kaiju cinema. You know, like the appearance of this creature, like the the emergence or the first time you see it. Um, the monster of the sea, the monster of remote times, is Brazil and Spain titles, but. 
the one I really wanted to point out was the, the Japanese title, which is um, right. Uh, because Oops. we're going to talk a lot about it, this being a huge inspiration for 1954's Godzilla. So I think we need to put a little context into what's going on at the beginning of this film. At the beginning of the movie? Yeah. yeah as far as, I mean, one thing I appreciate about this film is that it begins with a, a very severe but helpful narration explaining what's going on. <laughs> I, I don't think the narration is needed, honestly, because... It, it does go over that they're they're doing a test and sets up like oh it could go wrong you know they're they have a very limited time and they're setting off an an a bomb you know that which which I mean especially now I'm I'm thinking you're setting off a bombs in the Arctic that that doesn't sound like a great a great <laughs> thing to do well you know they um, at this point had done testing for for a bombs and for hydrogen bombs atomic bombs hydrogen bombs in the ocean in the desert you know they're testing i think they might have done some atmospheric testing at this point but um that happened a lot in the later 50s as well so i mean they they tested everywhere i don't think in real life they ever tested so i i think i think maybe maybe uh, russia russia did um i believe they did something in the 60s so still after this film but they did do a thermonuclear bomb test that was detonated um, in uh, on an island in the Arctic Ocean. But it, this is big news back then, especially the testing that other countries like Russia are doing. Um, uh, the year prior to this film, the U.S. dropped its first fusion bomb, its first thermonuclear detonation, uh, which the creator of the uh, or the lead of the Los Alamos project, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, um, at this time was internally advocating against the U S government to, to, to set off that bomb, um, and instead to, uh, pursue a, a pact with Russia to never set off thermonuclear devices because, you know, it's on a scale of like 100 to 1000 times more destructive than Hiroshima, Nagasaki. And you can, you can tell that that is <laughs> you don't want that end game content. You know, it's it's a, a major factor of, you know, why politics um, between countries deteriorated and why well, we got a 20 to 30 year Cold War. <laughs> well, and it also shows some of the how some of these films are informed by what's going on or what has happened historically in the, in the mid 20th century. Um, not now, unfortunately to the degree that it affects this film is not as much as say 54 is Godzilla. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's get a, a little bit into it. This film had a, almost a 10th of the budget as last week's film, mighty Joe young. Oh, it's with crazy. Re- yeah. With reports of it being less than a quarter million, so this film had less than $220,000 to its name. But still, on a, a film like this, on a shoestring budget, was ushered into theaters and made over 20 times that. And this is after World War II Allied bombing campaigns in Europe, European cities. We have a new term for this, which is called the blockbuster. And this is, this is where you're going to start hearing that term more and more often. Yeah, I'm sure there were probably some some other films that they they described in the news as as blockbusters, uh, but yeah, this is this is one of the first really big ones. We mentioned it was in 1,400 theaters nationwide here in the United States in that first week, uh, which is which is pretty crazy. 
Um, so you can imagine it's one of those first kind of film experiences that could be talked about nationally and everyone kind of knows what you're talking about. Um, Blockbuster indeed, this, this made well over $5 million within its first theatrical run. So within the, the, the year 1953, it had become a, a huge hit, you know, why this movie didn't get a, 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 a straight sequel. <laughs> uh, I do not know, but they, th- this would kick off a dozen other giant monster movies that we're going to be looking at in the fifties. It's definitely the birth of the atomic era in film. Uh, and it's something that we touched on in our first couple introductory episodes. And now we're taking our first steps into that uh, as we are getting closer to, you know, the, the Papa of, of the Kaiju <laughs> genre. But this, this is a, this is a movie that, I mean, had a lot of people working on it. No less than five writers worked on the script, which was originally titled, as we said before, The Monster from Beneath the Sea. Uh, first-time director uh, Eugene Laurie and blacklisted screenwriter Daniel James wrote one version. Uh, Louis Mornheim and Robert Smith's name appear on the shooting script. And on-screen credit ultimately went to Mornheim and Fred Freiberger. Yeah. It, it, it That's went, a lot of faces. <laughs> it went through a lot of different hands. And, you know, you see that in blockbusters today. They, they'll bring on and rework scripts over and over again. I think this one probably could have used one or two more script doctors to be fair. A hundred percent. It'll be, it'll be interesting because there's both a lot and not a lot to say about this, this film. And Uh, yeah. uh, So let's get, get into some of the nitty gritty of the cool things in, in pieces of trivia about this movie. Right. So they reused some footage from, I think 1935's movie She for the Arctic mm-hmm. scenes, uh, but they did build sets for where we see, I think within like the first 12 minutes of the movie, we get to see the beast, the monster after this A-bomb kind of unleashes it from the the ice, I'm guessing. We Which see... is a nice change of pace. I mean, outside of Mighty Joe Young, where Joe does come in fairly early in the film, mm-hmm. you know, we've been we've been waiting 40, 45 minutes to an hour to see the, the <laughs> creature sometimes. So this is this is nice. Yeah. And it's um at first you just see like some spines on its back, like passing by some ice. It is still kind of built up a little bit, but yeah, the first full shot you see, I mean, is a great special effect. And it kills one of the the main characters up to this point, and sets off the 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 main main character in Tom Nesbit. Nesbit. Uh, in you know trying to convince people like, oh yeah, there's a giant monster on the loose. We gotta, we gotta look after this giant monster. So um, there there are a couple little tidbits that have some film history connective tissues that I, I want to uh, pop into. Specifically, this one. Uh, there's a scene where Tom later in the film where Tom and um, the female lead are are at an opera and there's an elderly couple scene behind them. And those two people are actually very famous and the most prolific, what are called dress extras in the business at the time. Uh, Franklin Farnham had over 700 movie appearances um, and best flowers had 
was literally known as the queen of the extras. And she had over 1,000 appearances on movies and TV. So not only was she a favorite of many famous directors, she also appeared in a, a remarkable 33 of the 1,001 movies you must see before you die, far more than any actor or actress. And they both appeared in 136 movies together. Oh my goodness! It's uh, I mean it's it's wild. I love I love little Hollywood factoids like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. They just looking at their their Wikipedia here. Uh, a Franklin firm from Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, your neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, had had a, a huge career in in both vaudeville and then silent film, and then the golden age of uh, of Hollywood film, and uh, was acting up in till like 1960 yeah um, i would i would imagine these are people that that were just working class actors you know yeah yeah there was originally uh talking about some of the technical aspects of this film an entire score composed by uh, uh michelle michelette and then Harryhausen described it as a more kind of classical music score. And when it was sold to the Warner brothers, I believe this, the movie rights and distribution was sold for, I've seen various numbers anywhere from uh, 450,000 to $800,000, but Warner brothers uh, acquired the rights. And one of their stipulations was they wanted a new soundtrack and they went back and rescored uh I want to say 52 minutes of film with an entire new uh, soundtrack, original score by uh, David Batolf. It was more bombastic. And it's the one that you, you will hear if you watch this film. It's pretty good. I'm, yeah. I, I got to say, I like it. I like it. It works well. Um, it is, you know, thunderous in, in parts, especially when you see a giant monster tramping through New York City. And should we talk about uh, Harryhausen a little bit? On this yeah. Um, before we pop into Harryhausen, I do want to mention uh, mm-hmm. there's a scene where uh, the uh, Tom Nesbitt and another character, Lee Hunter, are looking through various dinosaur pictures to identify the monster. Oh, my gosh. Most- there's hundreds of them. Yeah. <laughs> so scene. most of most of the drawings and paintings are the work of a renowned nature artist, Charles R. Knight, who is considered the most influential dinosaur artist of all time because his paintings and drawings solidified the image of dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals in the public mind and pop culture through most of the 20th century. So these dinosaur uh, pictures that he drew and painted were basically in early classic movies like The Lost World, King Kong, or 1940s Fantasia. And most of the stuff that he did also influenced Ray Harryhausen, and including this film's fictional uh, Redosaurus. Unfortunately, though, Knight passed away uh, shortly before the movie's release on April 15th, 1953. Um, pretty pretty amazing drawings that they, they go through. They're there. gorgeous. Yeah, they're they're said to belong to the, the the doctor in the film or or Lee Hunter herself, who are paleontologists, and we get to see their studio, their 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 kind of headquarters at about the forty minute mark in the movie. It, it comes way late, to yeah. be honest. And in the background, there is a uh, like a brontosaurus. Um, skeletal you know frame uh, you know plastered bones that is another reuse from from a, another film set but it, it, it's great it it um 
it's one of the sets that impressed me the most in this this movie and they're not there very long unfortunately but yeah that's that's a good amount of time wasted here in the middle of the film which i don't have too much to talk about but the you know obviously the main kind of reason this movie did as well as it did was because of the segments and sequences that were not only directed but uh completely originated by by ray harryhausen who you know worked with other animators but he would be putting in seven day weeks you know uh stepping on the gas to get this movie put forward so many of the very memorable aspects of the beast including kind of its animalistic movements um there's a a point where you know they he doesn't animate it just stepping on a car, but he steps on the car and then it kind of like plays with it a little bit and then like pushes it aside. And um, there's my favorite scene in the movie um, where this, this beat cop in New York city just walks up to this huge lizard and starts firing a pistol at it and, uh, you know, runs out of bullets or maybe I think he only shoots off five shots. So maybe he's got like another round and it's not firing, but it looks at his gun and the beast uh, picks him up as he's screaming, which is a great, great effect. <laughs> his legs are, are dangling out of his mouth. And um, very specifically, it shows, uh, you know, um, I feel like a lot of these monster movies, it would show the monster kind of lifting its head up to allow a victim to kind of fall down his throat. Um, but this one, he kind of just like moves the beast's head forward and snatches at the food the way a dog or a cat might. So it's very, very naturalistic <laughs> eating movement. Yeah, I, I think that's, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest, as far as talking about the plot of the film, there's really not much to it, which is, is something that kind of pops again. The, the, the real spec, spectacle of this film is, the Harryhausen's beast. So good. It's like, I, I can see why Toho looked at this and was like, we got to do something, you know, half as cool as this. And they didn't have the time or the technical really know how to make a stop motion uh, creature uh, like this. So they did what they could and use pseudomation. Yeah. And I, I've heard, although I want, I read part of the interview in context it doesn't seem like it but a lot of people had to say that Harryhausen was very bitter about Godzilla because Mm -hmm. it was a guy in a suit and not stop motion but he has long been a massive proportion of stop motion animation well Um, yeah they're they're even in Toho's own studio they were worried people were going to make fun of them for for the the suit they they directed one of the suit actors to try and move as robotically as possible because they wanted they wanted people to think it was some kind of animatronic inside the suit, uh, which is you know hard to believe. But yeah, there right. is th- this movie is uh, the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms is kind of like the CGI of the time. You know, it was mm-hmm. the special effect that was very cost labor intensive and produced results on the silver screen you could not get with um, puppets or uh, large scale models like they would they would also use in in king kong in parts you just couldn't do it well and i mean because it's so intensive that there's no reason like outside of short films there's only one major studio or one one studio actually doing stop motion today yeah, in, yeah. in in Leica. <laughs> so 
which I, I find the art form utterly fascinating, but mm-hmm. I also understand why it's often not opted upon. Um, but as far as, as this, the actual beats of this movie, we can pretty much breeze through that aspect and then start talking about Harry Housen's work uh, in, within yeah. this film because it's, it is very cut and dry. Like you have it's, the scientists doing the research. They come across the monster. They, one guy gets killed. One guy gets knocked out. An A-bomb releases an atomic beast. For, for Well, it's not really atomic beast, but he is released through an A-bomb and goes on a rampage. Yeah. Um, go, goes down south. And there is 20 minutes, 22 minutes somewhere in there, middle of this film that is nothing. The beast does, isn't here. The beast doesn't show up. It's just the main character trying to convince people and find evidence that it exists and that he's not crazy. And while the, on paper, that sounds like it should be good, it, but there is very little that's compelling. They've already chewed up too much screen time. So it's very go here, go here, go here. There's not a lot of room for acting. There's not a lot of room for character. And you eventually kind of lose the character entirely once the beast beast pops out and goes on his rampage in New York. I mean, that's all she wrote. I'm I'm not a huge fan of the main character, Professor Tom Nesbitt, either. His dialogue just is doesn't work in a lot of places. I like Lee Hunter, the uh, um, paleontologist uh, played by Paula Raymond. She's great. She's very good. Um, we get a very little bit of Dr. Thurgood Elson, her mentor, and I thought father, but no, that's I'm, I'm uh, conflagrating this movie with them <laughs> later on. Uh, they just have like a very hands-on connection. Like he kisses her a few times on the cheek in the film. It's, it's oh, and awkward. she kisses him too. And it seems to be on the mouth. It's meant to look kind of, yeah, daughterly, but it it's it's doesn't. weird. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's it's very very weird. And um, I, I mean, I really enjoyed uh, Cecil Kellaway who who played uh, the Doctor. I thought he was great, and then I thought his death was very dumb. Yep, yep. Uh, he he's a a a classic British actor, British South African actor. His his IMDb says uh, he has a line where he um, challenges Nesbit uh, for saying he doesn't believe in leprechauns which is funny because a few years prior he starred in the movie the luck of the irish where he plays a leprechaun uh he was that's um, probably exactly why but he also uh was nominated for an oscar for that role he was also in a movie um well a, a lot of classics of 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 uh the golden age of, of hollywood the postman always rings twice um he was a i think an abbot in guess who's coming to dinner He's great. He's in this movie way too little, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, I, I really enjoyed his performance. I thought he leaned into the professor very well. I, and, and this is the problem with this movie. And, and something that will come up a lot and why this works as a kaiju film is there are plenty of kaiju films where they don't know how to balance the monster and human action. And mm-hmm. a lot of times you have human stuff that runs on, for some people, very long. I know the Godzilla franchise kind of gets a a, a little bit of a a bad reputation for that. I never really mind it. But the problem here is I feel like the movie, even though it's moving forward, I, I don't care about this character that there's no reason for me. He's, he's he feels stuck and the movie just feels like it's spinning its wheels. And then we get a cool monster scene. 
Yep. Yep. There's a lot of wheel spinning, um, but there's a lot of tropes that do show up in, in other films um, besides convincing kind of authorities of, of what you've seen, which, you know, you know, the, the, there is a little bit of disbelief usually in all these movies um, because typically the monsters appear in like rural areas first, or there's very limited kind of sketchy firsthand accounts. It's like, oh, well, some farmer up in Hokkaido says that a, a monster uh, ate his cows, yada, yada, that kind of thing. Um, this movie just takes it too long takes them a long time to find another eyewitness and then that eyewitness convinces the uh dr um thurgood um dr thurgood elson and it it takes too long yeah to get back to kind of like the main plot uh yeah that beginning area of the film very good but it doesn't carry that next kind of second act the majority of that second act um yeah and i i think for me that really hurts the movie um because I think we can just start talking about the, the monster. The, the monster is awesome. Like this creature Boy, is howdy. painstakingly animated. He, you can tell they don't have much of a budget, but Harryhausen is one of those guys who just can, yeah, you give him, you give him something to work with and he's going to give you something special. And there, there is a, a yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, there's some standout things that happen in the movie uh one of them especially is uh building destruction uh showing oh the building destruction this movie is top notch building collapsing and the only way to do that with stop motion is each of the individual pieces that are falling off a destroyed building are on like a guide wire you know and they each have to be animated along with with the creature he and the other thing i really want to point out is lighting the lighting for the stop motion armatures is amazing um particularly moving around new york in and out of shadows that's a big one but also there's a scene later on when the beast is attacking some um electrical wires and we see like bright flashes Mm -hmm. of electricity um yeah but did, did you have any favorite scenes of the the beast i thought the lighthouse scene which has been talked about a lot because of of uh, Ray Bradbury. I thought that scene was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, the destruction of the lighthouse is brutal, and I also thought there was a scene where he basically just walks through a building in oh, New yeah. York. Yeah, that's one of the scenes that shows like all the elements like falling individually, and it, it's also tied with a scene of like extras on the street getting like toppled over by like bricks and stuff it just works together very well yeah i i think i think and this is why people would pay uh money for a ticket is to watch this spectacle and and this is why I, to me i think the movie did very well because i think the human element really drags it down unfortunately there is one really funny joke when they're listening to the radio report of a um sea captain seeing the creature and the the radio announcer goes he really should stop smoking that stuff and try virginia gold (laughs) and i thought that gag worked so well it was it was such a funny little uh, it's the first time in the in the movies that we've watched a gag like that has actually really went off well and i i appreciate that and i was like well where's this smart writing in the rest of the movie (laughs) yeah i was about to say there's a lot of jokes that 
Tom is given that the actor just it falls flat on his face. And I don't know if it's just his portrayal of the character or what, but it just doesn't work. <laughs> it's so hard because the majority of this movie is him. It's not the beast, which is, which is the main problem <laughs> with it. Um, but yeah, really Harry hasn't, his skills are on full display here. Seems like he's just, I mean, showing off what he can do and it translates to more so than anything, probably one of the, the most impressive kaiju of the fifties, you know, we're going to see some pretty great stuff with Godzilla, obviously, and some bad stuff with Godzilla. Um, in, in rewatching, I was reminded that, tongue. well, I'm reminded that they did do some stop motion in 1954's Godzilla and it doesn't look great. It looks really bad by comparison. There's a reason why they didn't do a lot of it because they, they, yeah couldn't match the master um this movie of course coming out one full year before godzilla and not only inspiring that one but a a ton of other monster movies in the the 50s i i will say i mean there's a lot of stuff that didn't work besides the middle part they at like the 60 minute mark i think is when they figure out that the ritosaurus the beast's blood is toxic um which and they is were, a factor i enjoyed it, it's great but i they were just like they were so close to what godzilla does well and godzilla himself his footprints are radioactive mm-hmm. um if they had i think changed the beast from twenty thousand fathoms to be radioactive like the a-bomb you know they just they after the a-bomb in the beginning of the movie that whole element of the story is kind of dropped and it's now it's just about this monster you know um but yeah the 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 fact that they can't really kill it because it'll leave like this huge toxic mess is very interesting in this movie yeah and i mean they they do they have to do something similar uh well not similar but they they try to approach the problem you know in a way that like as they do in 54 godzilla where they're like all right we have to kill him from for through different means and so we're going to put this radioactive isotope and shoot it into a wound that we've already made and hope that that takes him out. Yep. Yep. So just like 54's Godzilla, they have a very special means of killing the beast in this movie. Why at the end they have to, uh, cl- you know, ride the roller coaster to the top to, to get that shot. I think it's just that's it's spectacle. Just it's a it's, spectacle. Yeah. It's pure. I mean, I, I love it's so stupid, but I love that. I love that. That's yeah. it's just this silly thing. All right. I'm going to get him eye to eye and just take my shot. And that is the long beach amusement park um, mm-hmm. standing in for Coney Island. Cause it's still in New York in, in the film. Um, and they were shooting there at night from 10 PM to 3 AM on the roller coaster uh, for the, the end of this movie. Yeah. But you know, one thing that's talked about a lot is the last 20 minutes of this film are nonstop action, you know, from the beast getting to New York, destroying buildings we go into a night scene where the military is uh chasing it around the city it like hides because you know the, the city's been evacuated um they're doing damage to it and they they close in to try and uh track it down and that's when everyone starts getting sick and they they figure out that it's going to be a lot more difficult they can't really kill it in new york without 
destroying uh, or toxifying perhaps the, the, the entire the city. city. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, they, I love they, some of the looks of the empty streets. I thought that was really, really compelling. Yeah, they actually did do some some shooting in New York in um, uh, Wall Street, and 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 some reaction shots of people um, running away there. Market Street, I think, was another one. The last twenty minutes of the movie definitely saves the rest of it. I will say, uh, it is worth watching. It's worth getting through any negative things we have to say about this film uh, just for for Mm -hmm. the the capstone for, for the effects on display at the end. Um, And audiences thought the same way too. Uh, Did you have any favorite scenes or, I mean, we've kind of, we, we, I think you already asked me, we, we talked about the, the lighthouse scene and oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> just the scene where he just walks straight through a building. I thought were were fantastic. That's definitely some of the best special effects on display um, uh, for sure. You, you get the, the two lighthouse attendants running down and then in the miniature, you get to see it's destroyed, but you can still see the, in the miniature, the stairs that they were running down on. Um, it's just elements like those of, that go from miniature to the full scale sets and back and forth. Very, very well. That, um, that love, you know, this is 10, 12 years before, uh, Gamera, <laughs> uh, 65's Gamera, where they also destroy a lighthouse and it looks 10 times better. <laughs> yeah. In this movie. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Harry master of, of the craft. And I was surprised indeed at how great, the, the miniatures uh, here did look. Um, the city was amazing, New York City. Yeah, and I mean, New York Times I thought very similar. A.H. Uh, Weiler said, at any rate, the mere mortals in the cast are no match for the beast of the title. A nightmarishly photogenic king-sized destroyer roused from an Arctic hibernation of many millennia by an experimental atomic bomb blast. Oh yeah, it was called Project Experiment, which is just like <laughs> also one of the worst names I think for a, yeah, well, a military. Like, like we said, the, the, this script ain't ain't, ain't uh, firing all cylinders. <laughs> uh, Variety High Hollinger said that the producers here have created a prehistoric monster that makes Kong seem like a chimpanzee, and they're kind of right. You know? Yeah, <laughs> um, it's a gigantic amphibious beast that towers over New York's highest buildings. And the sight of it walking or stalking through Gotham's downtown streets is awesome. That is the reviewers, what they were saying at the time, but that's also, I think the audience's reaction. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's not super surprising to me, honestly, despite this being such a box office hit that we didn't get a lot of follow-up or nostalgia for this movie because it was so immediately eclipsed by the movies that it kind of birthed, you know? Yeah, I I will say it just it it inspired so many American films. You know, not just Godzilla. Uh, no, no, I, I I agree. We're going to talk about Godzilla, but you know, all the more kind of like new creatures, new ideas, and um, I was surprised to find out that Godzilla was kind of the same way. We did get uh, immediate Godzilla sequel like King Kong and Son of Kong that came out like a year later, uh, but. There, then there wouldn't be another Kong movie for seven years, and we'd get things like Rodan and Mothra, and we'd get other monsters kind of inspired in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is it is odd that there isn't as much nostalgia for this film outside of kind of appreciation of Ray Harryhausen's 
skills. His, you know, uh, this is definitely one of the kind of cherries on the Ray Harryhausen fudge Sunday, <laughs> if you will. Uh, oh, this is man. pointed to a lot. That's, this, that's, t- that's tough. That's tough to call it. Jason, the, that's is pretty amazing. The skeletons. Yeah. I was about to say the skeletons, the, the Kraken, those kind of things are, are another one. Um, but yeah, this is, this is a creature that lives and breathes only because of the master's hands. Um, yeah. Very inspiring to the greatest Kaiju all over the world. This is a beast brought about by an atomic bomb detonation, and this precedes the movie Godzilla by 16 months. And <laughs> originally, the pre like during the production of Godzilla, its pre-published story was very similar to Beast of Twenty Thousand Fathoms, and was called the Giant Monster from Under from Twenty Thousand Miles Under the Sea, <laughs> um, which I, I'm not going to print. Uh, try to get the Japanese pronunciation of that one, but they're obviously inspired by the success and the story because we have kind of a similar monster. Um, originally, well, and I, th- I, I do think it's, oh, go, go ahead. I was going to say originally in this story, the Rhinosaurus, the beast was going to have a, like a flame breath, an atomic flame breath, very similar to Godzilla's. Um, so this shared so much DNA, even more so than it thought. I, I think it's important to note, though, that while the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms had not been released yet, when Toho producer uh, Tamayuki Tanaka came up with the idea for Godzilla, he was absolutely aware of its existence and success in the United States, um, which is why he had that, that title proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, so the treatment included a scene where Godzilla attacked a lighthouse, although Ashira Honda and uh, Takeya Murata removed it in the revisions, which I think was a smart choice because yeah. even though that you haven't seen this movie, you're still aware of its existence. You want to make something that is separate. Um, so yes, while Godzilla is a dinosaur roused by nuclear testing who sank fishing vessels before coming ashore a major city, the Renosaurus posed a threat primarily to do the ancient Azidi spread. While Godzilla's menace, menace stems from his impossible size, his destructive mm. atomic breath, and his immunity to modern weapons. Uh, and really, not just that, but the script for Godzilla contains far more pointed anti-nuclear message, whereas the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms doesn't make any attempt to comment on the political nature of its story. It yeah. just wants to show you the monster. There's not a moral at the end of the Beast of 20,000 Fathoms. They talk about atomic testing a little bit in the beginning of the film like is this mm-hmm. going to be the start of a new genesis or the end of you know a biblical yeah. chapter <laughs> well, not like, only that well, but like a little dark there's no there's no oh beauty killed the beast type of contemplation at the end it's the mm-hmm. monster falls down and the words the end pop up that's it <laughs> it's it's a very very abrupt ending i i i, I can't believe they didn't have any kind of love interest kind of reconciliation between the two main leads at the end there it yeah, is all nothing. about just yeah the monster with flames in the background you know which makes hellscape. me care less about the plight of the of the so-called protagonist yeah yeah they don't seem to be in immediate danger themselves i could have used a little bit more of the beast um you know uh going after 
Tom when they're on top of the roller coaster or something like that. The the ending was a little anticlimactic after yeah. the amazing New York battle scenes, you know. He just falls over dead. Uh the the legacy of this movie though, a lot of people say that 1998 Godzilla is is more of a spiritual successor to this film than it is the 1954 Godzilla. Oh, I I I could 100% get behind that from you know the design of the creature to the way it is handled by the military and is able to hide in new york city from them and finally it's entanglement and destruction in a famous land uh, landmark mm-hmm. um, very similar um the only thing <laughs> 98 godzilla doesn't have is its blood isn't radioactive or diseased or or whatever it's true so let's uh let's get to uh our own personal ratings for this movie. Uh, so we use a scale from one to 10 to individually look at personal enjoyment, technical and historically salient elements of the film, as well as the emotional and evocative responses that this generates as a piece of art. Uh, we will then combine those scores to get our one number. And that is our personal rating for the film. So Patrick, start us off on your personal enjoyment for this film. What are you rating it between one and 10? I mean, uh, it- it was hard to watch. Um, I had to watch, uh, especially the second half of the movie, a couple of times um, to really get through it. it. It lost my attention. They are definitely in the middle. Um, historically, especially though, I appreciated going through and be like, oh, this is like this scene in another movie. You know, this inspired this one. I'm not excited to get to derivative um, reiterated storylines in a ton of American um films of this nature but for me personally uh i enjoyed this you know on a few different levels uh besides just being a a a good b-movie monster film um but yeah i had mixed feelings there were some good amounts definitely some boring elements uh so i gave this a seven out of ten as far as enjoyment goes it's good it's definitely not great um it's up there that's honestly exactly where i was i gave this one actually uh, a six. Um, while I appreciate the monster movie stuff, I think that's the, I think the creature rampaging is great. It's so little of the total movie. It's just, that stuff is so good that it, it carries the rest of the film. And like you said, it, it's, it was tough to get through some of that uh, second act. Oh yeah. And like it, it definitely didn't make me like want to rewatch this. It made me want to watch clips of the monster scenes and that's it. Um, so that's, I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this movie because I think a lot of things about it should work and doesn't. And so for that reason, I gave it a six out of 10. Technically though, we've probably spent the majority of this episode talking about the technical elements of the movie. And uh, w- one thing I love about a great Kaiju film is the great ones. You can tell a lot of hard work went into them. Even if, the movie itself is cheesy. A lot of those special effects you can tell spent craftsmen a lot of time. And this is literally Harry Ray Harryhausen's blood, sweat, and tears on the screen for you to enjoy the acting, the scripts, maybe dock this one a point. But uh, for me, uh, technically, it gets a nine out of 10. So the acting in the script uh, dock a little bit more for me on this one. <laughs> the Harryhausen's work carries, like I said, it carries this film and the, the painstakingly detailed beast 
and the stop motion animation that they were able to pull off with the the scale of the city and and replicating these buildings and doing everything so precisely <clears throat> is incredible um but because the script and the acting are kind of poor and the the budget does show despite how hard Harryhausen worked around it um i'm 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 docking a little bit more but i'm still giving it an eight out of ten mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh what what do you think about your emotional uh your your kaiju so, genre response uh for this one my emotional response is a little weighted because of what comes after uh yeah. even even though it doesn't directly influence godzilla it is an influential uh stepping stone in the greater I guess oeuvre of of kaiju film and and it's it's important if you care about the history of of monster movie cinema and kaiju cinema as as if you're listening to the show you do this is a movie that you should watch mm-hmm. um and because of that I'm, I'm giving it a seven out of ten because of its importance in the specific the specific time in which it came out in and i think that can't really be overstated because it, it was just the right movie at the right time with the right person behind the special effects. Yeah. They realized how well this did in Japan. Um, I, I will say this film because it's legacy. Isn't that great? I mean, it's legacy is it helped to make uh, Godzilla, you know what it is. They saw America did a giant aquatic, you know, lizard dinosaur from the past attacking a populace and they made their own um and the 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 knockoff was better than the original in a lot of ways the same I way st- I, I still i still struggle to call godzilla a knockoff i i, <laughs> I definitely think there was some inspiration but i i i do not belong in that camp <laughs> i mean it also it i mean the reason it came about uh though i think had more to do with the success of the re-release of king kong in 1952 which did re-release in japan and was extremely popular there as well you know over 20 years after its its original run um where it also released in japan in 33 or 34 um but yeah this this one important both gave it a seven uh, well yeah i gave the 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 emotional response a six a little less i think it's important to the history of kaiju i don't think it's super important that you have to see this one outside of really appreciation of that last 20 minutes you know right um yeah we we both our average came out to a seven which means final score um putting it all together for the beast from twenty thousand fathoms for kaiju versus history is seven out of ten and that is it's a it's a good film. It's an important film for for history, historical purposes. Um, it's not the most fun. <laughs> it's going to there's going to be some growing pains. I, I don't think this is going to be the worst of the 1950s monster films. No. Uh, so I, I I can see it being a, a an easy seven out of ten. But yeah, this is one of the first in the 50s. So the last movie we yeah. did was 1949. Um, and and. We're gonna we're gonna stay obviously uh, as as we're going chronologically in the fifties. Um, we, we got a lot of fifties. Oh yeah, films. but that's gonna do it for this week's episode. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at Kaiju versus History. Email us with any comments, concerns, or Kaiju facts at Kaiju versus History at gmail.com. and go to Kaiju versus History.com to get ready for the next installment of our march through the annals of monster movie mayhem. 
Thank you to Patrick and our listeners. And we will catch you next time when we get some radioactive ants in our pants. <laughs> That's right. Tune in next week for History versus Them. Oh.